Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. I have a confession to make. I've been wanting to meet this week's guest, Dan Phillips, for years. Ever since I started my career as a graduate at Macquarie Bank in the 1990s, the founder of Macquarie's technology venture capital business has seemed like the stuff of myth and legend. Over his more than 30-year career at Macquarie, Dan has not only built arguably the most successful corporate venture business in Australia, or perhaps the world, with numerous investments becoming billion-dollar technology companies with an incredibly high strike rate, but he's done it without fanfare and finding time to actively support philanthropic and social causes which are important to him. Dan was one of Scale's first investors, and he's also been on the board of Australian Philanthropic Services for a number of years, encouraging greater charitable giving, particularly by wealthy individual donors. However, when you ask Dan why it seems that he keeps such a low profile, he honestly can't accept the premise of the question. He believes it's the entrepreneurs who do all the hard work, and his job as an investor is just to provide the capital, connections, and the support to enable them to fulfil their potential. He genuinely wants the entrepreneurs he backs to take centre stage and be the stars. It's definitely been worth the wait to meet Dan. For someone who's been so successful as a venture investor, you keep a very low profile. Can you sort of share your background and how that's led to be where you are today? My personal background, I was actually born in England and the family emigrated in 1976 to Sydney, so 45 years ago. And I joined Pricewaterhouse as it then was from straight from school, spent seven years there, did my professional year, so became qualified. And then I joined Macquarie. So career-wise, I've really only had two employers. I'd say just from a personal point of view, I've always been very focused on personal health and fitness. And I've found that's been really important for business because the sort of work we do is really nonstop. It's 24-7. And so you've got to have both physical and, and mental health as a priority to do that. Also, just personally and as a family, we're very adventurous and always looking to seize new opportunities, which I think also plays nicely into the venture world, which is all about people doing things that seem a bit crazy at the time or a bit impossible. So it's always pushing the boundaries. So I think my personal background overlaps quite nicely with the venture world and with the types of entrepreneurs that we were lucky enough to um, to work with. When you say you joined Macquarie, my understanding is when you joined, there wasn't really a sort of a a venture business at Macquarie. How did you sort of learn how to be a venture investor and and craft the business that you've created? So we came at it, originally we were financing 
research and development. So I came from a structured finance background and we were financing all sorts of different research groups who were to, to basically put money into their, their R&D. And this was back in the 90s before even the concept of venture capital was, was used in Australia. And it was from those activities that we saw, okay, you can do this in a financial engineering way, but that's not really the way it's meant to work. And it was from there building the relationships and the networks in the research community that we saw, well, Australia is really good at R&D, but they're not very good at commercialization. And that's where the capital comes in and, and not just the capital, but what, what VC is about is more than money. It's really about bringing expertise. And so it was really a bit of an accident that we said there's great tech companies here and uh, we have money. We thought we had a bit of expertise, but really that's the thing that that you've got to learn along the way. And fortunately, we had a patient investor in Macquarie and we were able to build a good team and just really take those relationships with the with the research sector and then learn about what's needed to actually turn that into commercial outcomes. I mean, it's held your interest for quite a long time now in terms of, you know, being a venture investor. Why do you think it's important? What, what is it about it that keeps you interested? It's one of the most exciting things you can do because venture investing, particularly in the tech sector, which is where we've always focused, is about disrupting conventional thinking, disrupting conventional business models, messing with what's you know called dominant logic which is the way things are done people have been successful so they think that's the only way to do things whereas what startups about is finding opportunities to do things better and there's really infinite opportunities so it never gets boring no two startups are really the same particularly if you're looking to invest in unique which we are unique opportunities where they have a competitive advantage as opposed to you know, just find somebody who's copying a a well-trodden theme and trying to be a second or a third or a fourth best. So when you're working with disruptors who are looking to become the leaders, it life's always interesting because it's it's extremely challenging, doesn't always work, and it is high risk. But it's a bit like I was saying before, that you know, sense of adventure and opportunity. Well, if you don't push yourself and move out of your comfort zone, well, things can stay a bit boring. And it's, I mean, it seems like every day you open the financial review and there's another article about startups in a way that there wasn't probably, well, certainly when you started at Macquarie and maybe even just a, a few years ago. What is it that's sort of important about, you know, this asset class? Firstly, it's quite phenomenal, as you say, how much the asset class has grown in Australia because it's been a significant driver in, in the US, in China, in, in Israel, in a bunch of other countries, but it's really come to Australia with critical mass in, I'd say, the last, call it five to 10 years, so not a long space of time. And I think the great thing is it's all about success breeds success. So we have had success stories over the last 20, 30 years, but they've literally been, you can count them on one hand, until, as I said, the last, call it five years, when there's been such a, a wave of successful companies going global, building multi-billion dollar companies, the investors who have gone in there, the the entrepreneurs who have built those going around again or reinvesting in other entrepreneurs. So the exciting thing in Australia is we've got to the stage where there's now an ecosystem. You've mentioned already that you find that sort of constant excitement and the, the sort of adventure of trying things new. What else do you find really enjoyable about your job? I think it's really all about the the people 
in that entrepreneurs are a, a bit of a unique breed in that it's not something that everybody, could, you could say on the one hand, everybody can be an entrepreneur, which is true. But in terms of taking a risk to start up a company, potentially put all your life savings into it, particularly put your whole soul and, you know, and work into it is a risky thing. It comes with a lot of responsibility and it means that they're responsible for, uh, for employees, they're responsible for delivering important services to their customers, and they're responsible for investors if they take money off investors. On the one hand, it's a very challenging thing to do, but on the other hand, entrepreneurs are amazing people to be around in terms of their, you know, their energy, their vision, their ability to, to do amazing things. And so I think that's where for venture capitalists like myself, to be able to be part of that ecosystem and work with driven people who are looking to do great things in a global context because you know it's all about global competition and or global competitive advantage is is just um, always exciting and you've got a bit of a lens on sort of global competition because you worked offshore with Macquarie for a number of years didn't you uh yeah I did so with our team we have a global team spread around the world and so we travel and have traveled sort of widely um, in our activities, but I did have the opportunity about 10, 12 years ago to, with the family to move to Shanghai. And this was back when China was a totally different place to where it is today. It was still in the relatively early days in terms of building out their tech ecosystem and building out their venture capital system. And it was a great time as foreign capital to be there. It was opening up. There were a lot of great entrepreneurs coming back from they studied in the US or, or, or Australia or overseas somewhere, came back, started businesses. As a foreign investor, we were sort of welcomed there and, and able to do some pretty exciting things. So for me, sitting in a place like China, which is equivalent to the US just in terms of the breadth of the opportunities, obviously it's a larger market. Australia is a great place to be and, and invest, but obviously the market's very small. So um, Australian companies have to go global, whereas if the company starts in the US or a place like China or India, well, if they're successful in their home markets, they can be massive. And so it's just a different scale of, of opportunity. And thinking about the entrepreneurs you back, is that one of the attractions where you, you see entrepreneurs that have that global mindset that think about their product and its relevance beyond just Australia? I think there's the two things. On the one hand, it's definitely that um, you've got to have that global mindset. And so most entrepreneurs are well-traveled and well-networked because by definition, it's no good thinking you're building the best, whatever it is, your version of the business. If there's 10 other people in the US and half a dozen in Israel and a whole bunch in China and so on, so you've got to know what's going on around the world. But then the second really interesting thing I find is that we've backed entrepreneurs in Israel, in China, in Germany, in, in, in the US, in Australia, and there's a lot of common characteristics there. So the interesting thing is those core characteristics and strengths that, that define an entrepreneur, you can find them all around the world. You make it sound very glamorous and exciting and make every day seem like it's an adventure. Are there hard parts of your job? Are there things that are really challenging? Yeah, oh, yeah I, I definitely wouldn't use the word glamorous. The challenging thing is when you're involved with businesses that are breaking new ground, that are disrupting the norm, that are trying to do things differently, there's no playbook as such for how to do that. And so what it means is that it's 
the companies and, and we as investors or all, all of us who are sort of involved in helping, trying to help them go from A to B, it's a learning experience and, and we don't know what the answers are. You know, what we're trying to do is take in as much information as we can, use the experience that we've gained from investing in a, in a bunch of other businesses over the years to try and come up with the right answers. And so it can be a real grind. I'd say it's more of a grind than glamorous, but if you get that right, the end result is obviously spectacular. That, that's probably the thing that people don't realise. Firstly, you know, it's very hard. So most companies actually don't get to, you know, achieve the raging success that you see in that small few that, you know, gone to be worth billions. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not successful because you can grow a fantastic business and build, you know, 50 million or 100 million of value. But it is really hard and, um, you know, you've got to be prepared to fail. And then that comes with probably quite a lot of pressure and angst and so on. And um, it's really a case of, I think, that the defining thing for everybody involved in the industry, whether they're entrepreneurs or investors or part of the ecosystem, is just the perseverance of you know, not giving up and, and just being persistent. I can imagine one of the hard things given where you're at these days, is just the number of opportunities that you have to select from and being able to to know which are the ones, how to filter through to find the ones that are going to be winners. What's the filter that you use and are there particular characteristics that, that are common to all of the investments that you've made? So the key characteristics are, firstly, it's always about the people. So you're investing in entrepreneur or ideally some co-founders who have got some complementary skills and they have a vision to do something special which is generally they're doing something where they they're going to have a competitive advantage in an, an, a large and an exciting market and so that's really the the key thing that we're looking for and then as an investor because venture capitalists are bringing more than just it, it's not about the money so much it's about how can they work with the the companies with the entrepreneurs to help them build that business and so for us as an investor at Macquarie there's things certain things that we're good at and we know that you know we'll be a good partner at and there's certain things that we're not the best partner at and there will be better investors and so the thing I enjoy about what we do is it's it's not that you're looking for every single deal um, you're actually trying to find the right ones where we think we're the right partner and where the entrepreneurs also feel that we're the right partner for them. And then that comes down to what's the area that you focus on. So we focus on some particular domains. We focus on, we've always focused on internet and software. And, and nowadays we're in the software area, particularly focused on the whole reg tech governance risk compliance area. And there's other areas where there's investors who are far better have far more expertise than we do when vcs knock back a deal often they'll be saying well it's not that it's not a bad opportunity but it's just not right for me and why don't you go and talk to these other parties at least that's my experience it's probably um, a bit more cutthroat in other markets where there's more money chasing fewer deals i guess part of it is, is our model at macquarie where we're not looking to do 20 or 30 deals a year we're just looking to do a very small number that we think fit within our area of, of expertise. I'm fascinated that you made the call out specifically about co-founders. If you're a fabulous solo founder, is your advice to go and find yourself a co-founder or, or do you think you're investable even if you're trying to do it by yourself? I think nobody can do these things on their own. So 
as an investor, all VCs are, are partnerships of a number of like-minded but complementary people because no one person is smart enough to be able to assess an opportunity and bring everything that it needs. And so likewise, on the, on the company building side, there's always a team there. The, the strongest opportunities are where there's two or three co-founders who have complementary skills. One might be strong on the technical side, one on the sales side, you know, or potentially on the business side, uh, because they're going to have to build that anyway. And so if they can sort of start with a strong co-founding team, that's a much better starting point in terms of engaging with investors. And then thinking about that relationship that founders have with their investment backers, what characterises a good relationship for you with the teams that you've invested in? So it's really about trust. The way it works is it's very interesting because when you're looking at an opportunity and and let's say we find an opportunity and uh, we want to put money in and the, the founders say, yep, yeah, we, we want to take your money, you go through a process of you do due diligence and you have to negotiate the deal. And so there's a tension there between the terms on which we want to invest the money versus the terms in which they'd like to take the money. So you're actually on the other side of the table for a period of time, which could be a month, it could be six months, depending on the process. But you've got to be aware that as soon as you've signed the transaction, you then move to the same side of the table. And it's really important that it doesn't become an us and them, as in we're the management team running the business, you're the investors, and we'll give you information. Certainly the way that we invest is we only want to do it on a partnering basis where we're really trying to, on both sides, be as transparent as possible so that we can understand what are the key challenges as I was saying before, more not what are the things that are going really well, but what are the things that are not going so well and how can we help you get them going better? And so the only way you can do that is by having transparency. And the way you can have that is through trust. And that obviously takes time to build a relationship. And that's really the key to successful investing because it's hard enough to build a successful company if you don't have alignment of interest between your stakeholders and the, the most important one here being your investors and your management team, well, then it's like trying to do it with one hand tied behind your back or your legs tied together. And so the most important thing is that sort of trust and the relationship. And do you get practically involved in the business, given that Macquarie doesn't do many deals? Do you take a seat on the board and, you know, get involved in mentoring the founders and, and being practically really involved? Uh, so we do. Our, our model is very much a hands-on approach. So We've got, we've got eight or 10 people in the team and at any time we'll have about eight or 10 investments. No, it's not, doesn't mean we have one each. It's just, it's a relatively small number of investments. We do take a board seat, but what we do is we have, well, I sort of call it constant contact with the entrepreneurs. And so at the very least, we would be making sure we're talking to them weekly, but we're in a lot of cases, it's daily and where we draw the line is we don't get operationally involved, but we look at what, what are the things that we can do. And we can obviously help with the money side, making sure they've got the right capital. And we can help in terms of making sure that the strategy they're pursuing is going to create the sort of value that they expect, as in what does the market look like? Where is it moving to? What are the competitors doing? And if you execute on this plan, what do we think this is going to be worth? So that's really about making sure the strategy sort of aligns with, with the objectives of the, the founders in terms of what they're looking to achieve. And then 
pretty key is around making sure they've got the right team in place. And that will change over time because you know, the starting team isn't always the, the same team that stays all the way through. But importantly, it's really building most of the all, all of the startups will be increasing their, their headcount significantly over time. And so it's sort of assisting with that. And then the other thing that we find we can assist with quite a bit is just customer engagement, because the thing that startups need more than anything else is customers. And to the extent that we can leverage relationships that we've got as a, you know, Macquarie is a global organization with parties that might be potential customers of the startups, then even just opening doors to the right people can be quite valuable. I know it's a bit like trying to pick between your children, but is there a favourite investment that you've made over time that you can sort of talk about what you love about the founders and the business that they've built? Um, so I'm definitely not going to get drawn into that trap. I mean, we've done 38 investments over the last 25 years and everyone is unique, but I'll mention three of them. And the reason I mention them is, is just because I picked them because they have quite a significant impact on just people's day-to-day lives. So one of them was PEXA, Property Exchange Australia, which built the electronic conveyancing platform, which is how we now all buy and sell property in Australia. It's unique to Australia. Hopefully, it can be exported to the world. But that was a an opportunity where we got involved at the business plan stage. So they, they didn't even have a, a product, let alone any customers or revenue. But it was such a compelling opportunity that we invested in the business plan around a very strong entrepreneur. And you know, to fast forward today, and it's a listed company with $3 billion market cap and pretty much not 100%, but more than 90% of property transactions in Australia go through the Pixar platform. And you'll see there's a common theme here. You know, we love, I love things where we've got involved very early on. I wouldn't say we do seed stage, but we do occasionally. But Temple and Webster is another example where when we first invested in Temple and Webster, they were doing 300,000 revenue a month. So they were very small. Everyone was saying, oh, you can't, you know, furniture and homeware is online. It's not going to work. Well, again, fast forward today and Temple and Webster does more than 300 million revenue a year. They're listed. They've got a market cap of 1.5 billion. That's, I think it was about 10 years ago when we sort of first invested. So that's another amazing story. And that's the way that more and more Australians are going to be buying their furniture and homewares. And then the third one I'd mention, and again, I'm saying I'm not picking favourites. I'm just mentioning interesting ones is back about um, maybe seven or eight years ago, we invested in one of the German online food ordering companies called Lieferando, which um, at the time was doing a few million dollars of revenue. We ended up merging it with a Dutch player called Takeaway.com. And we took that public and fast forward today, Takeaway.com now owns Just Eat in the UK. They own Grubhub in the US. They even own Menulog here in Australia. So if you see the Menulog ads on TV, the logo, it's orange colored, right? They've actually got the logo, picked up the logo from the takeaway.com, had, you know, as a Dutch company, orange logo, right? So I get a nice feeling when I sort of see those Menulog ads and think, oh, wow, well, we played a part in that journey that ended up with you know, this Australian company being part of this, one of the world's largest global um, online food companies. Fascinated by the PEXA story, just someone with a business plan has managed to get through your door. Was it the quality of the entrepreneur that made you take the meeting? Like, 
presumably there's lots of people wandering around with great business plans, with great ideas that are never going to turn into PEXA. So all those three opportunities, they, I mean, they all had amazing entrepreneurs. So in the case of PEXA, yeah, Marcus Price was the founding CEO and we had done two previous startups with him. So that one was easy because having you know known him and known him as probably the only person we knew who could pull it off, also having that really strong relationship that we'd built up over, I think by that stage, more than 10 years, 10 or 15 years relationship. And so it was really around his his credibility and his ability to execute that enabled us to get involved in that at a very early stage. Are there any setbacks, failures, disappointments that you're happy to share? It doesn't have to be an investment story necessarily, but something that you feel you've really learned from? Yeah, I think um, the one that stands out is actually the, the tech wreck back in 2000, because we started our business in the 1990s and we made a few investments. In fact, one of them was was Seek back then. I think we did in 98 or 99. And of course, in 2000, and it was actually 2000, and then there was a double whammy in 2001, but not everybody listening here would even remember this, but <laughs> we had this massive tech boom and then we had this bust. And I mean, that was a huge learning experience because at the time we were a real outlier within Macquarie. I mean, this was a time when Macquarie's business was booming off the back of infrastructure and its world leadership in in leading infrastructure as an asset class so we were in this strange situation where the rest of Macquarie was just booming and we had this small business with about 20-25 people which overnight I wouldn't say was wiped out but we were in this black hole uh, just sort of trying to manage the the opportunities that we had and and just see well how do we actually help the companies we're involved with in just to get through this and it was like being in a tunnel where you knew there was a light at the end of the tunnel, but um, you couldn't see it yet, but you knew you would see it. And then it took about a couple of years and then you could see the light at the end of the tunnel, then maybe another year and you actually got out of that tunnel. So I mentioned that one because it was a real learning experience around we could have just closed the business and said, oh, this is all too hard. I mean, people might remember back then, I think Amazon was, I think, a $4 share or something like that. You know, it was nothing... <laughs> Somebody could have really done well out of that. Apple was potentially going bust back then as well. So, you know, we hung in there and it did take a good three to four years until we sort of got through that, you know, got out of the tunnel. But I think the learnings from that were a great foundation to then sort of take into, you know, the, well, I guess what's been the the last 10 to 15 years or so. It's pretty amazing to talk to someone who can just rattle off three investments that they've taken from effectively seed to more than a billion dollars of, of market value, you know, have quite a low profile. Is there something that people are surprised to learn about you? Is there anything that, you know, is, is not well known? So you've mentioned a couple of times, I think the key, and this is the case with, with most investors, you know, we, the, the people who do the hard work are the, you know, the entrepreneurs and, and their teams. And Sure, we can provide capital and we're lucky enough to have an experience that we can leverage. But, you know, our job is to be behind the scenes and be supporting that. And so, you know, it is appropriate to be low profile like that. So in that respect, there's not that many surprising things. Probably the thing that surprises people the most is just I've been at Macquarie for 33 years and it's unusual. You don't find many VC teams like ours within a large institution because, at some point in time, the the strategy of the institution diverges with those that of the of the team, and then and they can go and raise their own funds. Whereas, I think that probably the most surprising thing, if I sort of follow that your question, 
is that we've been able to build a successful VC business within Macquarie that's survived the test of time, and, and including three CEOs at Macquarie. So originally Alan Moss and then Nicholas Moore and more recently Shamara. And the fact that the institution has been able to you know, support us in the right way and you know, create a real win-win you know, has been a, a really great story, I think. Well, and a testament, presumably, that there's a strong cultural fit for you at Macquarie. You know, it seems like, you know, culture drives a lot of things at Macquarie. So if there's not a fit, you wouldn't have lasted 33 years. Along that journey, are there pieces of advice that you've received that have been really helpful? Uh, There's one particular piece of advice that really stands out. And it's only been relatively recently that I've really thought about this. So this actually was advice that was given to Paul Bassett at Seek. So Seek, I mentioned, is one of the companies we we backed back in 98, 99. And I remember Paul saying the advice that he took on board was, and it's, it was Wayne, around Wayne Gretzky, who's the you know, champion Canadian ice hockey player. And the advice was, you know, why is Wayne Gretzky so much better than everybody else? It's because everybody else is following the puck and he's looking at where the puck is going to go. And I remember Paul talking about that, as I said, you know, 25, 20, 25 years ago. But it's amazing how true it is because the way I, I see that analogy is that it's fine just to look at what are you doing today, but you've got to look at consequences and look at where things are going. And when you're in just, you know, involved in disruption, when you're involved in highly competitive global markets, it's not enough just to sort of say, right, we've got problems to solve, we'll do them this way and you know, this is how we'll move the business ahead. It's almost like a three or four-dimensional chess game and so you've got to be looking ahead and everything you do has consequences. And so... You know, I think that Wayne Gretzky analogy is, is, is probably the one that stands out the most for me. I can imagine that you've formed some really incredible relationships with some superstar performers over your years of investing. Is there a particular person that's been very influential or, or, or a role model or mentor for you? I've been lucky that through my career, and this is really Price Waterhouse and then the early days at Macquarie, I've had good let's say, managers who have steered me in the right direction. And, and it's really been around keeping your options open and not, not specialising too soon until, you know, you know what you really want to do and what you're good at. And that sort of served me well at Pricewaterhouse and it served me well in my early days at, at Macquarie. In terms of what I do now, I would say that, you know, the most important influential person has been my wife, Jackie. And the reason I say that is because, Firstly, what we do is it is a 24-7 commitment. And so it's something that, you know, you've got to sort of work family around. And so that's really important. Same to the family, oh, let's go off to China for four years. You know, you've got to have a very supportive and understanding family and it's got to be, you know, it's got to work for everybody. But probably most important of all, you know, given what we do, building close relationships with entrepreneurs and they involve both work and you develop close friendships as well that involve the, can involve the families. My wife actually has a, a background in, in counselling and psychology, and so she's got great people skills and, and great insights. And even though she doesn't have a background in venture capital or anything like that, I find that just having a trusted sounding board who, you know, some of the things that we go through and being able to have somebody, you know, with a lot of those skills and empathy skills and so on has sort of served me very well. 
Have you been able to pass that love of entrepreneurship and adventure and disruption onto your kids? Uh, I have in that we're very open around the dinner table and obviously we don't talk about confidential things, but given the relationships we build with entrepreneurs, if rather than going out to a restaurant with them, we'll have them over to dinner or we'll go to dinner at their place. And so I've always made an effort for the kids to understand what I do, to meet the people that we deal with, you know, meet some of these great people that we're, that we're dealing with. And then naturally, you know, they, they get a bit of an interest and, and a bit of an insight into what we do. So, my, I mean, my kids are all grown up now or, or, or university age or older, but they all have a, a good understanding of what we do. They've, they know most of the entrepreneurs that we've dealt with, you know, met them at various places when we've gone around the world or whatever. And so, again, it comes back to, as I was saying, it's been important because I don't think I can do what I do in isolation of because it is a, a 24-7 commitment. That can only work if you sort of intertwine it with the rest of your life, you know, with the family life. Yeah, and I think it's only just starting to change that sort of perception in Australia of what a good career looks like, you know, being an entrepreneur and starting from nothing and, and having to do all the jobs, you know, putting the garbage out and doing the dishes and all that sort of stuff. It's only, I think, starting to be accepted that that is a, a viable career choice as compared to being an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor or something that has more prestige. In terms of other than people that have been influential, any any books that you really love or recommend to people? So I, I do like to read as much as possible. And I read very broadly, mainly nonfiction, but a little bit of fiction. But in terms of reading, the one thing I always read every week is The Economist. A bit boring. That's the the advice I always give to to people, young or old, is you know if you want to you know just have a good view of what's going on in the world and be up to date on everything, and also for in terms of how world events are connected to to business and in economics, um, I just find that's a great read. And then in between all of that, I just read as much as I can. But there's obviously only so many hours in the day. And no particular books that stand out over time that you keep returning to or that have made a lasting impression. Oh, look, my favourite book that I've, and I guess definition of a favourite book is one that you've read more than, more than once. I think I've read this one maybe three or four times, is Papillon. It, it's actually a, a non-fiction about Henry Charrier, I think his name was, who was a gangster in, in France, in Marseille maybe, and in those days they sent him off to the French penal colonies and he just escaped multiple times. And, and so it's, a, it's an adventure story basically, you know, adventure and survival. And it's, it's the French word for butterfly, isn't it, Papillon? Yeah. Right? yeah. When you meet entrepreneurs seeking funding, is there, other than reading The Economist, any other advice that you have for them? Yeah, so I think the, the key things are firstly to do their homework. So I think it's really important that they actually do their work on what they're looking to do, on, on what's required, on, you know, on the investors that they're, that they're potentially looking to talk to. I think secondly, and these are maybe not in any particular order, but do homework to be authentic. I mean, that's critical. I think the third thing is, I would say, surround yourself with great people where there's the right chemistry and where you can learn from other people's experiences. And I see that time and again. I mean, great entrepreneurs surround themselves with people that they can learn from and not necessarily have to make the same mistakes. And then I think the fourth one is be realistic as well. I think it comes with this authentic and be be realistic. So those would be my advice. So last question. There's lots of doom and gloom around or has been for the last year and a half. 
But rather than focus on that, what are the things that you're really optimistic and excited about? I'm just really excited about the smart young people in the world who are sort of coming through, whether they're at school or whether they're, you know, going into university or leaving university looking for their first jobs. And whilst on the one hand, it's been incredibly hard for for a lot of them, obviously, the last couple of years, and they've had challenges that we never had. On the other hand, that's all going to fade away. In the meantime, um, there's so much opportunity out there, but it's just a matter of you know, people have to grab it and there's um, so many smart young people coming through and that's um, probably the, the most enjoyable thing about what I do is often, in addition to, you know, the companies we work with, it's, it's sometimes just chatting to young people who are sort of trying to make the decision, what do they do when they leave school or how do they get from uni into particular roles and just seeing, you know, how many, you know, smart, ambitious, you know, driven people there are out there gives cause and I'm an optimist anyway but it gives me cause for a lot of optimism about you know people coming through who are going to be building the future for us all well that's brilliant thank you so much for spending the time and sharing you know your wealth of insight thanks so much Dan okay thanks Catherine we hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course, combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.